watcher. Back for another fix of caffeine in history, I see. Episode 12, and time to turn our attention to the odd man out in the sealing industry. Reading about him after the fact, James Waddell comes across more as an explorer who went sealing than a sealer who went exploring. James Waddell spent 20 plus years in the Royal Navy, achieving the rank of master before switching over to the merchant service in 1819 on the encouragement of James Strawn, co-owner of the brig Jane. Waddell was given command of the Jane for a sealing expedition to the South Shetlands, discovering and renaming the Powell Group two months after Powell and Palmer visited in the process and returning to England safely in 1821 though with too little saleable cargo to make the voyage particularly profitable. The Jane was sent on a second voyage, this time in company with the cutter Beaufoy, bought on the proceeds of the Jane's first voyage and placed under the command of Matthew Brisbane. The ship sailed on an agreement that if plentiful seals were not found early in the southern summer, they would explore beyond previous forays. Bellingshausen's news that Cook's sandwich land was not the northern extension of the continent did not reach Waddell or his packers before departure, and Waddell sailed expecting to find unplundered seal colonies just south of Cook's chartered lands. Waddell's time with the Royal Navy gave him the experience in navigation required to chart extensive regions of coast accurately. Where Powell carried one chronometer and could report a location sufficient to find it again, and most other sealers relied entirely on dead reckoning and made reports of locations so inaccurate as to almost qualify as fallacious. Waddell carried three chronometers at a cost of £240 each. Cross-checking one against the other allowed the meticulous Waddell to generate charts every bit as useful for navigation as those made today. In mid-January 1823, the ships arrived at the South Orkneys and a boat was sent ashore on Saddle Island returning with six skins of an unfamiliar seal species. One of these skins was later sent to the Edinburgh Museum for examination, where it became the type specimen for Leptonicotes Weddelli, the Weddell seal. Finding only a few fur seals, Weddell sailed south, dodging icebergs and making tentative way through fogs, hoping to find land and a migrated population of seals to seal. On the 27th of January, the ships reached 64 degrees, 58 minutes south, and having found no land, turned north. Approaching the Sandwich Islands, the ships crossed Cook's track, and Waddell realised they wouldn't find any land where his competent predecessor already reported none. On the 4th of February, too late in the annual summer to expect a lucrative haul of seal skins, the ships turned south once more to engage in pure exploration. The cold, fog and poor diet took its toll on the crews of both ships, and a string of gales ensured they stayed wet and miserable as they sailed south. But on February 16th, at about 70 degrees south, the wind eased and the icebergs disappeared. On the evening of the 18th, surrounded by whales and seabirds, Waddell reported, in all caps, not a particle of ice of any description was to be seen. Following this in more standard text, the evening was mild and serene, 
and had it not been for the reflection that probably we should have obstacles to contend with in our passage northward through the ice, our situation might have been envied. Waddell was further south than most previous voyages, and the weather held fine with no ice in sight from one horizon to another. Given that his ships lay in what we now call the Weddell Sea, that ocean of growling, tortured sea ice that sent Shackleton's endurance to the bottom in 1914, it's hardly surprising some people later questioned the claim, but Waddell claims they sailed further in increasingly good weather. On the 20th, their position was calculated as 74 degrees 15 minutes south, 34 degrees 16 minutes west, placing them 214 nautical miles further south than Cook's southernmost position. The sea was calm. Four icebergs lay in sight, but no land, prompting Weddell to conclude the South Geographic Pole was oceanic. The bergs, reminding the crews of the ice maze to the north, combined with a gentle breeze from the south, prompted a turnaround. They hoisted the colours, fired a gun, gave three cheers, drank an extra ration of grog and named the area the Sea of King George IV. The ships experienced rough seas once clear of the pack, sheltering at South Georgia and then wintering at the Falklands, where they found fur and elephant seals locally extinct. Waddell, a keen observer of natural history, lamented that restrictions equivalent to those imposed on fishing net mesh sizes never interrupted the race to reach zero in the Antarctic seal rush. Estimating an annual yield of 100,000 skins a year if mothers and suckling young were spared the slaughter, Waddell recognised the tragedy of the commons playing out to his financial detriment and personal displeasure. In November 1823, the Jane and the Beaufoy sailed west to seek seal skins around Cape Horn, but returned to England in July 1824, one crew member dead from malnutrition and with little to show for their efforts. Arriving home, Waddell was billed £245 for some of the scientific equipment he sailed with, and the ship's owners wouldn't help him or hire him again. Waddell did a runner to dodge the debt just before Sir Walter Scott was due to give him a gong from the Royal Society of Edinburgh. The ice-free conditions Weddell experienced in 1823 didn't occur in the Weddell Sea again for over a century, leading many to question the veracity of his claims. I've seen the satellite images of the open water at the position he claimed to reach in February 1823, and recognised the man as principled, competent and determined. But he also made a sincere claim regarding a mermaid one of his crew described encountering on a beach in the South Shetlands. I shouldn't let this detail poison the well of a man I hold in high regard, but seriously? A frickin' mermaid? Waddell asked three of his officers to swear an oath to the correctness of the ship's logs. James Clark Ross, Waddell's successor as commander of the southernmost exploration yet, wrote that Waddell was favoured by an unusually fine sea and we may rejoice that there was a brave man and a daring seaman on the spot to profit by the opportunity. Most vociferous of Waddell's critics, William Herbert Hobbs disputed the 74 degrees south position in a long campaign to privilege American claims in the area throughout the 1930s, but more of this in episodes regarding Richard Evelyn Byrd. Waddell published a voyage towards the South Pole in 1825, but his finances never turned around. 
the Jane went to the scrapyard in 1829, and Waddell died in poverty in 1829, aged 47. If you want to get an idea of how hard case these people were, look up a picture of the Beaufoy and imagine sailing in her through ice-choked waters and stormy seas. At just 65 tonnes, she doesn't look lake-worthy, let alone able to tackle the Southern Ocean. Now, some thoughts on pronunciation and coincidences. Accepting a signature on my paperwork, I see the signee's surname is Waddell. At McMurdo Station, the Americans refer to the seals on the sea ice as Weddles, so as to rhyme with petals. I never liked this, as I knew enough about Scottish names to think it should rhyme with Lead Bell. But as there are a thousand or so Americans and only one of me, I adopted the local pronunciation. I also drove on the right and let them think they were better at dodgeball, just to keep things sweet. So, on meeting a modern-day Waddell, I asked her how she pronounced her surname, and the Lead Bell hypothesis was confirmed. I explained that I was writing a podcast episode about James Waddell, the Scottish sealer and explorer. She replied that she was his great-great-great-great-granddaughter. Great. This is not the first such coincidence. Someone in the same industry provided family-based expertise in pronouncing Stitzbewich when I was preparing to narrate Paul Ham's Sandican for Vision Australia. Bill Stitzbewich was one of three survivors of the horror of the Sandican death marches and featured regularly in the text, so the help I received in getting my pronunciation consistent, if not correct, was much appreciated and timely. Freaky, no? Well, no, actually. No one provided similar help before I messed up my pronunciations of 1RAR while narrating Mark Donaldson's The Crossroad. No Russians have leapt to my aid in sorting out Bellingshausen's confusing array of possible name combinations, let alone their pronunciation. Did a friendly Norwegian pop their head around the door to offer a path to confidence in saying Thule? Did they bollocks? So much is happening in the world around us that mundane coincidences crop up nine times out of ten, and nothing you notice as a coincidence will ever top the millions to one shot of the egg and sperm that made you coming together at the end of the staggering string of matings in your ancestry. But if you do count the hits, remember to count the misses too, before you get too excited about coincidence. Having said that, if I meet a d'Urville working in that industry before I get to his contribution to the story, I might have a rethink. Now, just between you and me, after 20 years in marine ecology, my already arcane skills have become pretty much redundant and I'm finding it hard to find work in my chosen specialty of benthic marine invertebrate ecology. To keep the bills paid, I'm making a transition to science communicator and educator. With paying the bills in mind, I'm starting a Patreon based on iced coffee. You can look to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash ice underscore coffee to see what's on offer for patrons and what will happen to the show as we reach particular milestones. But of everything I threw into the mix, I think the smallest increment is the most interesting. For $1 an episode, patrons will receive a second MP3 recorded in tandem with Ice Coffee outlining recent developments in Antarctica. Find out what's happening in Antarctica's present, as well as its past, by becoming an Ice Coffee patron. Take care.
and enjoy your coffee.